0: Hi everyone, and welcome to another episode of Stepping Into Frame, our podcast all about women and screenwriting. Uh, If you haven't already, please feel free to like, share and subscribe to our podcast. It's free to do so, and it supports us, uh, a ragged bunch of screenwriters around the world. Um, You're more than welcome to go to scriptdepartment.net and have a look at what our global gang of screenwriters are up to. And if you feel so inclined, you can even buy us a coffee these days. It's pretty high tech. So, welcome to. I've just called you, you just called me (laughs) Joe. I couldn't resist. (laughs) Welcome, (laughs) Helen. How are you, Helen?
1: I'm fine. Thank you very much. How are you?
0: Good. Thank you. (laughs) Uh, And we are talking today uh, about um, You've Got Mail, uh, which is a film that we both love very much. Um, It was. Made in 1998, it was written by Nora Ephron and her sister Delia, starring Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan, and inspired by the film from around about 1937 or 1940, some conjecture about that, The Shop Around the Corner, which we'll talk about in a little while. So tell me, Helen, what were your first impressions of this movie? When did you first see it and what did you think of it?
1: I went to see this in the cinema. Um, I would have been a very young teenager and I saw, I loved it so much that I went and I saw it again. And there weren't many films that I saw twice in the cinema back then, even though it was like two pounds a ticket and I would go several times a week, I would only go back twice to a couple of things. I don't even think I saw the matrix twice. I think I only saw that once. So uh, it resonated a, a lot with me growing up and I, I think as I've got older, it's 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 one I dipped back into, um, and questioned why it was that it's something that I do go back to for Sunday afternoon viewing, and um, it's a lovely love story. But ultimately, this film isn't about love; it's about personal discovery, um, identity, growth, that kind of thing. And it it was an impressionable age to have watched it, and I feel that it resonates still with me now as a as a woman.
0: Mm, interesting, because it's a pretty grown-up film to watch as a young person, isn't it? Like it really deals with some fairly hefty topics in a way around, well, I guess just mature relationships, eh?
1: Yeah, it um, does actually. Mm.
0: And very convoluted ones on Joe's side, like really... Yes. like all of the complexity of the yeah the um the the, the, that was the aunt that's younger than him and the and the brother that is a lot younger than him and all all the stepbrother all those strange family dynamics which is interesting but we'll get on to those in a second so okay so it's obviously left a legacy on your heart if you like and it's something that you go back to I find it is a bit the same as well I, I don't I didn't see it at the cinema, I know that much. Um, I can't exactly remember. It's one of those films that I can't exactly remember when I saw it. I think I saw it on a DVD or something. And um, But I do remember being really struck by it. And part of being struck by it was actually, and we do need to talk about this today, was struck. I was struck by Meg Ryan's hair um pretty pretty severely I was I had this massive crush on Meg Ryan's hairstyle um in a lot of her films (laughs) across the 90s and that was one of them um but we'll come back to that because that's sort of a minor issue really we're here to talk about the screenwriting and screenplay (laughs) but um I, uh, I I really loved it and, and it it, stu- it struck with me and it is one of those films that I do go back to, probably not as much as some others like When Harry Met Sally, which is really kind of my all-time favourite go-to and even a little bit The Holiday, which we've talked about and I think um, you guys crushed me on. Are we were, Did you do the chat with me and Marcus or was it?
1: I didn't, um, but I have listened to it and it it was brutal. It was brutal. It was
0: brutal, wasn't it? <laughs> but I think you also agreed, didn't you? I think we were having a chat about maybe we were talking over WhatsApp and you were, yeah. I think, yeah, there's, anyway, the holiday got cut down. So When Harry Met Sally is my sort of predominant one that is a go-to, but I did always like this one sort of in my top sort of three of those go-back-to movies. However, over the last few years, I've really changed my tune to this film um I love Nora Ephron I love everything that she writes I think she's absolutely brilliant she's a genius writer and for her time of her time was 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 unbeatable at what she did but I just think this is a film that for me hasn't hasn't aged as well as I would have liked it to um which we'll dig into a little bit and it's a little bit about the gender politics and stuff like that which we will we'll sort of come to so anyway, um, let's start by talking a little bit more about the characters. So um, what was it what did you make? so we've got you know a pretty traditional middle class American um, couple if you like. Um, who, uh, which is something that we tend to get a lot of in the 1990s sort of rom-com genre. Yeah. Um, There's an awful lot of but, white privilege going on in this film, isn't there? There's a <laughs> lot of white privilege going on. Yeah, a real lot of white privilege going on. And, and again, you know, it's something that probably at the time, well, I'm sure at the time we, we weren't as tuned into as we are now, which is a good thing. But um, you've got, you know, you've got Joe Fox, who comes from the Fox family, who's the big... um. The big sort of corporate uh, company that's going to try to take over the world with their cheap books, and then you've got um, the Meg Ryan character who is the other end of the spectrum who runs her runs a store that she was given by her mother, who was her mother was a character in the town who everybody knew, everybody bought books from her. She was a great storyteller. There was this real family connection. Um, between her and her mum. So, uh, Kathleen's was her, um, Kathleen's mum was, it was Kathleen's mum, wasn't it? Yes, that's right. I'm trying to remember her name, remember yeah. the names. Um, so but yeah, Celia. so Celia, thank you. So, um, Kathleen is this opposing character very much from Joe right from the start. What did you get a feeling about the, this sort of juxtaposition that we have right up front in this sort of two very different characters from two very different worlds? Um, yeah, what did you sort of make of them as characters?
1: Well, I think the first thing that I noted really about watching it critically, and I should should um, thank you really because I've always just sat back and just watched this film, even since you know sort of being more involved in screenwriting and script analysis. So w- looking at this through a critical lens was was actually really helpful for me, and something that um, came through this time when I rewatched it was that they are they are effectively on the same spectrum. You know, they they um, they have the same endearment to their city that, you know, sense of place is really important to both of them. They both love New York. They both share this kind of romantic idea of what it's like to be with somebody else. They both have the same interest in their, you know, their professional lives are around books, around um, selling books. Uh, so it, it, these are very sort of loose things that they're they're connected with. Um, but then they are at the opposite ends of the spectrum. And when you think about how the, the typical antagonist protagonist relationship works, that is the setup. They are the same people, but the other sides are the versions of that same person. So for Joe, everything is business. And for Kathleen, everything is personal. And, um, you know, they even make this comparison themselves when, they talk about the ability to deliver um, zings to people they don't like. And Kathleen doesn't have that ability and Joe has too much of it. And they swap at one point where Kathleen is vile to Joe in, in the cafe and he doesn't reciprocate. So, you know, they... They neither one of them match each other until much later, so I I, I don't actually see them as two very separate people. I, I see them as the same person, which makes the conflict even better. But yeah,
0: uh, yeah, and it's well, interesting because. Um, Joe gives her in that when they have that conversation about the zingers you know and and how to zing someone and get your point across and win an argument type of thing and he says you know let's swap and I'll teach you how to do it and then but he did say remember um there was a caveat that he put on it and he said but you will find that even if you do it successfully you will feel terrible afterwards and indeed that's what Kathleen found was that she felt when she was rude to Joe and it all it all came together she was able to say what she wanted to say she did feel terrible and the d- the way that's used as a device for Joe is that's almost his save the cat thing, isn't it? That's his moment where we as an audience go, oh, okay, well, he lives this sort of pretty shallow corporate life. He's all about business. He's not about people and, and other things that are important. But we do get, and his, actually his email communication with Kathleen is his other side, if you like, and we get this sense of someone who has, who has depth, who does feel, who is much more like Kathleen. Um, you know, he's kind, he's caring, um, which is one of the reasons that um, when they both find out who they really are, um, you know, it, it's not an easy an easy moment of reconciliation for them both because they have these perceptions about who they are. Um, but, I, but I guess my question on that is. I thought it was very deliberately created this sense that that there was this other Joe that came out through the emails. Um, but when I was watching him as a character, I was watching him fairly carefully and particularly this most recent couple of years through. And, you know, he does, does live in a pretty terrible world. You know, he and his family rejoice when other businesses go out of business, you know, when one of the one of the other businesses goes up as, you know, there's that moment which I really I really can't get over, <laughs> where they're at the they're, um they're all at that um event that party um a dinner party I think it is and Kathleen bumps into Joe and he's holding that platter and he wipes the caviar off from around the outside of the dish and she gets really angry with him and she said you know you, don't, you wouldn't you don't take all the caviar you know and and I thought that as a moment was a really insightful moment to show us the truth of Joe's character. And actually, I kind of thought a person that does that, like that is like next level privilege slash pretty terrible. And it juxtaposed quite quite disconnectedly with me, if that is a word, um, for Joe. I, I couldn't reconcile this Joe from the emails and the Joe that appeared at the very end of the film that Kathleen found they fall in love, blah, blah, blah. Um, I, I couldn't reconcile it. Could, could you? Were you able to get over that through this film?
1: Uh yeah, I I was just because of the references they made about Pride and Prejudice, um, which is uh Kathleen's favourite book, and because she expresses that to NY152, aka Joe, she um he reads it and there's you know there's a connection built between that. So you know, when you think about the structure of Pride and Prejudice and, you know, this Darcy Elizabeth feud that you know they clearly love each other, he realizes it before she does, and you know he has to work to gain her back. There, the, the structure is fairly similar in that sense. And then when you think about Kathleen's personality, the pride she has for owning her shop, for providing a more personal service, for you know, and the 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 difficulty she makes in overcoming that pride to close her shop, but also the prejudice that is there against Joe for um you know for being that white privileged man who. Doesn't have any. Doesn't need to. Has never needed to, or doesn't understand what what personal actually is. Um, so i i could I could get on board with that idea. You know that that they were portraying Joe in such a masochistic way, and um, I, the way that Joe actually interacts about women leading up to the midpoint is quite interesting as well, because it fits into that trope to that flaw that. You know, and it, um, I thought it was quite similar to Harry from when Harry met Sally, you know, that idea that, you know, this is this is how it works between men and women. And that's it. And, you know, towards the midpoint, he's about to go and meet Kathleen and he doesn't know it's Kathleen it's shop girl to him. And all he says to Kevin is. Um, she'd better be as you know pretty if she's and even makes a bold statement to say actually my standard is I want her to be good looking but if she's even as attractive as a mailbox I would be insane not to drop everything and marry her so you know and that when he just he's his kind of the karma for that is he's rewarded with a beautiful woman so why wouldn't he just marry her but the woman is Kathleen who he has a professional hate for so that is his karma and it's that that he has to that's part of his character arc is overcoming that um it's a shame that that actually when it comes to the discussions about the this online love relationship thing that attractiveness is only given to what the men want but it's never discussed in the in the sense of what the women want when they all talk about it in the shop they don't talk about is he do you think he'd be attractive he could look like you know something ghastly and um I think Joe makes suggestions of it but just to poke fun it's not yeah
0: yeah it's not a it's not a serious thing so yeah and there, there is that and I think the other part of it which I struggled with a bit later on is when I looked at that because both of them we the film sets up where both of them are effectively they're not they're not well, they they ask. I mean, Kathleen asks the question. You know, am I having an affair because I'm writing letters to a man I'd, I've never met? You know, she she asked her her shopmate that question, and um and you know they are both in relationships as the the film opens and as it continues and they continue to be in relationships till quite a way through the film. Um, I was wondering about that and about what that does to it. does you know is that the kind of is overlaying that sort of morality question, d- is that supposed to sort of dampen some of the morality issues with it? Because if you look at Kathleen's fir- boyfriend that she was with before she meets Joe, well, while, actually, while she's talking to Joe, um, they break up for sort of reasons that they just have sort of fallen out of love. There's no sort of. Um, sort of terrible ending to their relationship, nor is there with Joe and his partner particularly. But um I was looking at at him at the boyfriend character and thought, actually, he's really nice. <laughs> he's actually like morally. Is he nice? <laughs> I think, I I mean, think I look, he's I, nice. I thought <laughs> actually, because I thought morally he was probably better place than Joe because he went out of his way to help her when she did the protesting and stuff. He wrote that article for her and, you know, like he was actually trying to help her not lose her business. Whereas Joe, for all his, you know, underneath it she gets to know him and she likes him, is still very comfortable to put this woman out of business and not just put her out of business but put out, you know, her mother's there, the whole legacy, the whole sort of social capital of that business in New York you know like there's some I could not get over that if I was Kathleen <laughs> you know I could yeah. not get over it you know what I mean? whereas the other guy was was quite he reflected these quite helpful positive even though he was flirting with the girl on the tv which I think you know was okay for tat when she's emailing <laughs> yeah, exactly. someone else in romantic
1: terms yeah,
0: well, term. yeah, yeah. And, and that was the setup to the let's make it easier to let these characters go right because they're imperfect too which is fine but I don't know what do you think do you think that's reasonable well, or am I really underselling joke it's interesting
1: because I saw Frank um, uh, who's uh, Kathleen's boyfriend at the time I saw him as actually uh, probably a very traditional male stereotype so he right at the beginning when he's talking about how she's a lone reed, you know, he he shuts her up. He, He physically stops her and mansplains a bit to her. And she walks away with this expression of, I don't know what just happened there. And then there's another incident when they're in the cinema and he says, I could never be with someone who doesn't vote. And she says, well, I went and got a manicure last year and I forgot to vote. And he's like, well, I forgive you. And she's a bit like, no, hang on a second. I'm not going to put up with that. And she gets up and leaves. And then when there's a suggestion that he is flirting somebody else, she visibly retracts from him and makes a stand again. This is not the kind of person I want to be with, which is a double standard because of course she's having this fantastical love affair. And um, I had a thing about, about that. I, I was thinking, well, actually that infidelity is never called out on either side because of course, Joe is in a relationship with Patricia and Kevin knows is aware of the relationship that he's having with Kathleen. Um, and n- neither side have a problem with this, but um in preparation for this, i thought well actually i'm i 'm going to have to rewatch Sleepless in Seattle and when Harry met Sally because I feel like I need to be able to talk about about Nora in a proper way and um it 's a trope it 's a trope of how she writes every each one of those there is an instance where there 's an infidelity, and when you think about Sleepless in Seattle particularly the whole film, she is duping Walter, you know, he's, he's kind of believing they're going to get married and all of this lot and have a romantic dinner in New York. And all the time she's planning and, you know, still engaging with this idea that she could be, you know, falling in love with someone she's never really met. And, you know, so I think, I think that's a trait of Nora. I don't, I I don't think I've put too much thought into it to understand why that's a trope. Um, but it seems to be acceptable in, in her world in her fictionalized world that this infidelity isn't isn't an issue until it is. See what I mean? Mm.
0: Like it it's is interesting. A
1: or, yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and you you're right about that because there it is is definitely a trope that comes through and and I guess if you think of sleepless in Seattle, um we don't we don't We still want to see Meg Ryan's character get the guy, don't we, in that we still we're on her side. We don't judge her for the fact that she is still with Walter um, at all. And I guess and nor do we put any judgment on these two because they're, I guess because they're equally having, well, kind of having an affair. And, yeah, and we don't really and And we don't, there's no judgment placed upon that. I guess possibly in this film, it's about to highlight to us as the audience that these characters are not with the right people, potentially. so which which okay, does a job. But yeah, I don't know. I just I really struggled more and more with joe and and what happens and the fact that at the end of the day and i've you know i've I know I've said this to you a few times not on um podcasts but you know the, the fact that at the end of the day she's not only does he bankrupt her business but he finds out who she is before she does yeah she yeah. finds out he finds out the truth before she does goes and, a bit creepy isn't he <laughs> instead of being honest about it he doesn't and he tries to you know make up make good for himself um and then sort of you know come in and and which he does so it's a successful technique but then you know i i just still can't get over at the end of the day there's the you know there's him coming around the corner with the dog in the final scene and and i can't help thinking that you know this is a guy that's bankrupted this woman killed a career you know shamelessly trot all over a mother's legacy lied to her but here we have the happy ending at the end and you know and that's lovely <laughs> and, just, and even though you love this I just I can't anymore I just you know, just think I just can't I can't get over it I really can't and I know I it's pretty I think
1: probably-
0: um, <laughs> I think I've
1: rationalised it in my head because I thought, well, actually, Joe's father is the one who's the head of the organisation. So, you know, actually, he's doing it by proxy. It's not, you know, even if Joe didn't want it to go ahead, could he have the power to say, no, we're not going to open the store here? Or would would his family have overrun that idea anyway? So that was oh, one. Oh, I think of you're
0: giving him a long, a lot of escape I am. room there. <laughs> bear
1: with me, bear with me. So then, then there's the um, there's the the device that her being out of business, the opportunity that this creates. Because I found that this film was about her personal development. You know, we're introduced at the beginning of the film. We're halfway through a conversation between. Um, NY152 and Shopgirl so that isn't the inciting incident the inciting incident is the shop opening and that suggests that there'll be a denouement that reflects that and she at some point I think towards the end of the first act she casts out this idea even though she's living you know the, the same life that her mother did she's inspiring others helping them find out who they are through books through stories through this personal service she is still questioning who she is and what her purpose is And without the device of the shop closing, she would not have fulfilled her need to find out who she is, to become a writer, to be an independent person away from her mother's identity. And that needed to be facilitated somehow. um, And of course, was coolly facilitated by Jo. Um, But then also within that, I think there's a a brilliant bit before uh, Kathleen goes to meet for the last time goes to try and meet my one five two and realizes it's joe and joe says to her um something along the lines of you know how is it you can forgive him for standing you up for the massive thing of standing you up and not forgive me for this tiny thing of putting you out of business and i i do feel that, that actually really shows well what's more important here it you know is it, and I think that plays into his arc as well, where everything was business to him. And now all of a sudden it's personal. So that really demonstrated his arc, but also fed into the idea that, you know, yes, like, yes, your business was put out, you know, you, you but you vote you're OK. And also um, it's just money. So like what this personal thing that someone did to you, you can forgive, but you can't forgive You know, that. And so I I, I just sort of rationalised it in my head in that way. But that he does that idea that he knows something about her and doesn't reveal it is a bit creepy in today's day and age. And it reminded me a little bit of the film Passengers and also... I thought it was interesting rewatching Sleepless in Seattle that it's actually the other way around that the heroine is the one that holds the power in that voyeuristic way. She knows who he is, but he doesn't know who she is. Mm, so you true. Know, Nora's kind of flipped the roles there, which I thought was quite interesting. Um, mm. But yeah, you're right. Like, could you,
0: would you? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a, it's a funny, I mean, you I can't, Yeah, you know, I, I really can't rationalize that. And then, and again, that comment where he said, you know, I someone's done a terrible thing like stand you up and I've only done a tiny thing like put you out of business and to me again that's part of that well, what kind of a character is that 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 can rationalize that and then okay yeah she gets you know there is the bit at the end where she goes oh well I'm gonna write now because I've probably wanted to write and perhaps arguably maybe she is a writer underneath and maybe she has been fulfilling the wish of her mother keeping that bookstore open there is definitely that as a consideration because there's that lovely scene towards the end when she closes the bookstore and she's we see that sort of flashback moment of her with her mum dancing around and it's beautiful and it's very poignant but there is a sense that she's in a way you know is she is she um taking care of someone's else's dream or is she living someone else's life you know there there is that and then you know so she says to him okay i'm gonna write now but then you know the economic rationalist says well how are you gonna do that now you've got no business yeah. and what or is he gonna save you financially because you know that's well, what the Nora's guys thought of
1: that because they had she had tea with birdie and she said about you know what she was going to do she had a little bit of savings and birdie was like if you need any help just ask me i'm loaded so, you know, that oh, that's sort of true. plot hole is covered. Yeah,
0: that's um, true. And
1: I, I saw the closing of the shop because because it happened, you know, sort of at the back end of act two and because she referred to it, she was describing it as feeling like she'd lost her mum all over again. I took that as that kind of that whiff of death, the death of the mentor, you know, that in the story arc for her, that that was what that represented. Um but if that was the goal, if, if, you know, her self-discovery, you know, becoming an independent woman in a different way was the motivation in this film. We aren't privy to we, we don't see how that actually that defining moment occurs. We just it's a flippant throwaway line of, well, it was actually him, NY152, that put me onto to the idea of writing we don't get to hear that conversation and that feels like a really big thing to overlook. So I struggled with them with that missing link.
0: Mm. Um, yeah. Cause it is, it is a fairly, a fairly large thing, isn't it? It's, you know, in terms of it, it is a defining moment that we would like to, we would like to get more of a sense of that shift from, from her probably. Yeah. It's an interesting point. Um, how did you feel? Uh, New York city was, and, and New York life was well depicted here, I thought, in this movie. Um, yeah. We get this idea of the, you know, the decline of small business, but we get a kind of a, there's a real cosy feeling about this part of New York and, you know, and there's a real sense of outrage from the community when Fox's Books comes in and it's sort of, you know, and obviously um, Kathleen's Story is called The Shop round the Corner. So it feels very local and community and it feels very sort of quaint in this idea that everyone's welcome here and what a wonderful place it is and that you're always surrounded by people that you know and you like. And did you get a sense of that in this film? And how did that sit with you as a sort of a, you know, almost – almost like New York's a little bit of a character, not quite, but just a little.
1: Yeah. Oh, well, I think, again, this is another trope of uh, Nora Ephron. You know, she she's really good at sort of making her locations part of the characteristics of the story. They're, you know, they are quite key to, you know, that sense of place is really key to some of the stories that she tells. Um But in a way, in this particular film, because it's such an endearing thing for both of those characters, it's kind of present in everything, isn't it? It's in the food that they eat, you know, and the places that they visit or they meet, and the style of the apartments. Like you could just drop into that film at any point and know that that is New York. And um, I I think that that that's really key to their characters, but it also just makes it a really rich film it's a it's she's captured a zeitgeist as well hasn't she you know in the mid 90s with this with the internet not being accessible it's not everywhere yet not everybody has access to it not everybody understands it but she doesn't overplay on it but it's just enough so it's not timeless but it almost is um and I can re-watch it for that but I think when I was when I first watched this, my I came away from there thinking, right, I I need to go and live in New York. I need to cut my yeah. hair. I need to yeah. be a writer. I need to like embrace shabby chic and start going to Starbucks. Yeah. And like it, it felt like <laughs> it just it just bled into me the whole yeah. thing. That presentation of this story just really permeated.
0: Yeah, what did it do and for I, I you? Do- Oh, well, same thing, and I, I absolutely agree. I think all of, well, some many of Nora Ephron's films, certainly When Harry Met Sally, certainly You've Got Mail, absolutely really made me love New York and want to be there and think of it in a very romanticised terms and, yeah, want to be a writer and, you know, go and live in these exotic sort of bohemian communities and be with your people and all of that sort of stuff. So I, did, I really love that, um, you know. And and then you think, gosh, well, you you're probably going to be really disappointed now. These days, aren't you? <laughs> Maybe not experience anything it's like that. Not the same but one New of the...
1: Yours, is it? <laughs> Yeah,
0: no, I'm sure it's not. But one of the other things that I think she did really successfully, and it's and I I guess my concerns about Joe's character, if I put those aside for a second, and I have a look at what she has created here, she has created a fairly a fairly equally balanced sort of world so we've got joe's family which is very much the sort of you know this big american multi-generational family where these sort of strange flukes of remarriage means that he's got an aunt and a stepbrother that are like decades younger than him or whatever and you we we have that scene in um where he's where all his family are together for thanksgiving or whatever and then but then equally we go to kathleen's group during Thanksgiving and she's there with her co-workers and her friends as like this urban family so I quite liked that that there's sort of this sort of difference this different worlds of the different types of people in New York and family groups and that sort of thing I thought that was really nicely put forward and also the idea that um you know you get you are you do really have more than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Two sort of political sides to this coin. You've got the kind of, um, you know, the, the big corporate crushing the, you know, the mum and daughter sweet business. But she, I think Nora Ephron and her sister create this sense of allowing both this liberal and conservative view, this kind of capitalism versus social view. Um, and I think she does that really well in the film and I quite like the fact that she doesn't, what I, what I really like more than anything is that she doesn't place judgment on those. I've placed judgment on those massively on Joe, but she doesn't. Um, I don't think, and I don't think the film does. And I do like that as a technique. I think we get a really balanced view of, and of the idea that okay, you know, Joe talks about well, it's just business, and Kathleen's like, well, her business is completely personal. So it's it's not just what you were saying at the beginning about you know the two different ways that they see they see the world. Um, and I just, yeah, I felt that was really quite, quite. it served the story really well. Um, how, did you get a sense of that? Did you sort of appreciate it? Yeah, I, I did. And I, I think that
1: period of the 90s was, was, you know, sort of really pivotal in that increasing corporization of business across the world, but more significantly in, in America, I think. And uh, Kathleen even captures it, doesn't she, when she, she writes about her, the closing of her bookshop. And she says that it will, it will probably become something really depressing, like a baby gap. So she's sort of already knows. And, that, you know, even the picket line, they talk about, you know, how they won't get off the subway and know where they are because the, the essence of where this place is, is going to be lost to these big corporate brands. Um, and I, I guess I, I, um, I don't know Nora Ephron's work enough to sort of confidently say that there was an undertone there of, you know, sort of a cautionary tale of if we allow this to continue, this is, you know, what we'll be losing. Um, but I, I think, it resonated with me looking back more than probably it did when I was a teenager, but definitely as an adult looking back and seeing, I can remember Gap coming to my local town and, you know, it was new and shiny and fantastic, but actually it was at the cost of some of our smaller shops going. And like I say, it didn't mean anything then, but now the shopping centres are all empty and you kind of think, well, actually, yeah, that's, that's a pockmark. You've left a pockmark. A big scar on on what you've done to our community. So
0: yeah, but I th- what I also think is interesting is for a romantic comedy, if it's if we're supposed to really empathise with Kathleen's character and her, which we do, and her plight, and we feel sorry for her and the fact that she's been bought out by this big sort of capitalist corporation, but it's interesting then that Efron chooses not to serve that back to because if you were going to make this a traditional happy ending she would have kept a bookstore right she somehow the bookstore would have stayed and the corporate person would have got their just dessert somehow or something you know and all would be right in the world but I thought it was particularly pertinent that that was not the case and so in this romantic comedy the heroine didn't get what she wanted um at all and actually we had this fairly big loss at the heart of it and okay she gets the guy whether that's good or not whatever but you know I felt that was a that was actually pretty progressive of probably back then is that this that you know that traditional rom-com ending would be she gets what she wants everything's okay and she still gets the guy or he finds a way to save it he steps in and says no we're going to keep your little shop but we are still going to be here but we're going to support you or something you know there's a million endings you could have yeah, put yeah. in where I they both get Jane Austen
1: would have had it ended like that wouldn't it she would have got what she wanted yes. and what she needed but you're, yes. you're right Kathleen yeah. only gets what she needs at the cost of what she wants um, and her reward is love which isn't a very progressive way of looking at it but this is a rom-com so you know love has to be the reward for both sides um, but Joe does seem to get what he wants and what he needs, which in balance doesn't feel right, but no,
0: no, I don't think so, but i'm you know i'm i- am i gonna let it slide just for now, so anyway, one of the things about this film um is that this film was originally um it came from. or was in, uh, inspired heavily by a film called *The Shop Around the Corner* uh, from 1940, which was um, starred James Stewart and Margaret Sullivan. And it was set. It was like Hungarian set film. It was set in a um, as um, like a manager and a clerk or a sales assistant working in a shop in Budapest, in Hungary. Um, and I thought, I don't know, have you ever come across this film? i have heard of it i think imdb
1: cites this as um the original story being taken from a play called the uh Parfumier, i think um which is a french play which i don't think is in run at all but um i have heard over the years that this has a correlation this particular film this 1940s film has a correlation but i've not watched it so i i couldn't make any comparisons
0: I'm afraid. yeah it's a uh, i haven't seen it i've only seen little snatches of it but it's interesting because it does um follow the story pretty closely with the exception of the being put out of business bit um that I am going to let go but um one of the things that i thought was fascinating was i read that actually on a comparison between the 1940s version and the 1998 version that the 1940s version according to a select group of um, questionnaires, is that they believe that that one actually ages better because in that version they write letters to each other, like old school letters. And the and the commentary now is that when you look at the 1998 communication between these two, the technology has advanced so much that we really feel the datedness of that anonymous email type of communication what do you think of that <laughs> a kind
1: of well, yeah I can't I can see that I think and um I can remember I mean I was always very um into tech when I was growing up and thankfully so was my dad so we were one of the only families to have a computer when I was growing up and then the internet so I was introduced to chat rooms rightly or wrongly very early on so you know sort of to relive the idea of you know the over 30s room um, which I'm pretty sure I probably wasn't allowed into um, at <laughs> that age, but really there was lovely. nothing to stop you apart from a tick box. So, um, which I'm sure is probably still the case. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think I, I maybe because I have that connection with that particular technology that I I find it you know relatable and endearing. You know, maybe a younger generation or even an older generation might not. Um, uh, but I, I don't know, like, I, I feel like even nowadays people are, are not likely to send letters of, of any description, you know, let alone secret ones. I, I don't know how people, I guess people would, would probably just have a, um, an alias, wouldn't they? You know, so many, uh, s- social media accounts allow you to have now so you know if you think about it how many of these types of anonymous love letter relationships go on every day now than ever before um yeah so i i can see what you mean about how it has remained timeless um but from what i can see it's it's a you know it, this is still a black and white film set in the 40s and would um you know it's time stamped on its own isn't it um, but yeah, I think it's it's the idea, isn't it? The idea that, uh, and again, preempting social media, that you can have a personality online, a presence that's online, and either be entirely yourself or be someone completely different. And in this example, in the film, you've got male. They've chosen to be themselves, who so they can't be necessarily, um, or specifically, Joe can't be in the
0: real world, can he? But Kathleen yeah. seems to still be that person in the real world. Yeah, um, she seems yeah. to be pretty integrated, doesn't she? Her yeah. personal and business life are, are fairly, fairly singular, if you like, whereas Jo's are, are fairly different. Um, could you remake this in the modern day? Is it possible? I think, could you still I think create you, that same?
1: Yeah, I think you could. I think probably even easier now, like I said, because social media is, is quite often such a um, blindsided way of communicating you know you don't even have to have your own picture of yourself up do you You could have a picture of your dog and no one would know whether you were passing in the street or not um so I I I feel it's probably even more tangible um to have that kind of thing now
0: it's funny though isn't it because if you think about it in a way on one level it is easier but then equally on another level would you ever you know there is it's so there are so many warnings now about all sorts of things aren't there? you know Mm. catfishing and all sorts of stuff Mm -hmm. that goes on and and what do we do when we in a sort of modern day dating life you check someone's social profile out don't you you know you kind of well you might you may you may not yeah. um <laughs> so for this.
1: That. i got married uh, i've been with my husband for 16 years now so the way that the dating scene like tinder all of that lot is beyond yeah. me it, I yeah have right absolutely no idea how you would work in that you know and i think that's a generational thing definitely you know I, I, even watching sleepless in seattle to hear um you know sort of sam talk about how he doesn't know how how the dating system works and actually the conversation he has with with a woman to try and arrange a date he's really taken aback by it doesn't go how he thinks so you know i i think if you're out of it for a significant period of time it's so different i would really struggle to write i think um something that reflects the dating world today
0: Um, well this is it and 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 the other side of that is that what goes with that is so often now people even outside of dating just in social media generally people's People so often have a curated version of themselves anyway. So you've got this you know how truth is how truthful is it is what people are presenting and the ability to yeah, present not only that you know difference between Joe's business life and personal life, but you know we can we can curate completely fictitious lives or positions for ourselves. So it's kind of interesting. would be interesting to consider where you could take a, an updated you've got mail. It, I think yeah. it would go into a very dark place.
1: I think it, <laughs> I it don't has think the potential too, doesn't it? I mean, unless maybe yeah. if Wes Anderson did it, perhaps not.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe not.
1: <laughs> and but, was there anything? Um, I think, uh- well, I, all I was going to say was, um, I think on that idea of, of the, you know, the, the, the online presence, the virtual presence, and, you know, sort of how how you see yourself and how other people see you, I think Patricia, uh, Joe's girlfriend, provides a really good opportunity to for Joe to see himself as Kathleen does in the real world. And when he does, that's just before he gets in the lift, she's kind of like, oh, who do you remind me of? You know, oh, you remind me of me. And that really unsettles him. And that provokes him to leave his girlfriend and it leads to a discussion with his father and he then decides that he actually wants to be this better person he wants to give kathleen the opportunity to get to know joe for who he is so i i see the motivation behind keeping that screen up because he wants her to fall in love with him who he is and not who she thinks or how he's been behave you know behaving something about how your behavior doesn't
0: define you or, or something like that um yeah definitely family. and it that's a really interesting point because in the nineteen forties version, I'm not that I've seen all of it, but I have read that that same technique happens where the the antagonist, if you like, um, discovers before the protagonist. So the the guy uh, finds out before the girl who what's really happening, and he does the same thing. He tries to create to build this bridge because he realizes that if she, if he told her straight away, he would lose her. So, you know, it's a common thread of a, you, you, that technique of, all right, I've got some some ground to make up here um, in order to when the truth comes out for it to go the way I want it to go. So from that point of view, you sort of go, okay, I'll get the motivation and it, and it does make sense. It's just and equally... I mean, exactly how it works out with
1: darcy and elizabeth bennett in pride and prejudice you know it takes her to reflect back to him this is how you've behaved You've, you've broken up the relationship with my sister because of your prejudice and you know that is why I hate you and I have a a, I think she also had like an incorrect view of him over Mr Wickham which he needed to clarify but when he was presented with that he then went away and rectified it because he didn't like the behavior that he he didn't want to be that person and again that's reflected in this story that sort of same structure for his character arc is present um and i that, nora likes to do that doesn't she she likes to pull out either a film or a book reference to you know kind of weave yeah. into the thread yeah, um, which is echo
0: back for us
1: yeah yeah. Definitely. And I, I, yeah do you think that that's to kind of help us you know because we'll be familiar with those those me, those uh, stories already that you know we can justify maybe joe's behavior because we could justify mr darcy's behavior you know like could she ever forgive yeah, someone for, you know breaking yeah. up her sister,
0: th- breaking her sister's heart you know yeah i think so and i think also a bit more fundamentally than that from a sort of technical point of view in in kind of script and screenwriting audiences love it when they know something that one of the other characters doesn't you know when they're in on on a plot line that that isn't isn't shared that it's a very powerful technique in in writing so um you know, the reference back to the kind of classical works that we love and appreciate and, and can empathise with other characters is really powerful as technique. But I think so is a technique in itself and that sort of idea of a secret and the idea that you don't know or maybe or one character knows or the audience knows and no characters know, you know, that sort of playing with the knowledge um, between the entities of the audience and the different characters is such a great, I mean, it's, it's one of the fun things about writing, right, Playing with all that, um, yeah, which is great. Um, is there anything you didn't like about this film? I mean, I've been a bit scathing to Joe, but you know, other than that, I did like the film. But she, is there anything that um, you didn't like? Well, i I struggled with,
1: um, I, I struggled with the infidelity, the fact that that was all okay, but um, knowing that that's how it is for Nora in her writing, maybe there's something that that needs to be unpacked further there um, to understand that.
0: Play for free at
1: LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law.
0: 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: Kind of almost not groomed her. That's a very strong word. But, you know, he, he was manipulating the situation, wasn't he? He was like, oh, is he married? Are you married? What do you mean am I married? Did he say it? No, he didn't. You know, he was he was really manipulating her her viewpoint. And I didn't like that um and there was also a point I think when he first goes to see her um when she's closed the bookstore and she's not very well and he says that he wants to be her friend and she never questions that she never goes why why do you want to be my friend like why (laughs) and I would go I would ask why like what is it what do you want like you know I'm I'm lying in bed and you're sat on my bed and I hate you so why are you here (laughs) um you know sort of that boundary was a bit blurred (laughs)
0: Yeah it was I think that that was a really good scene to call out actually because I think there was a really big blurring there of boundaries with you know he turns up so if he, if we consider from just her perspective the audience knows the truth of it now mm-hmm. but she doesn't and so when he turns up at the door and sort of says i want to come in and and she mm-hmm. says, no, I don't want to see you. And then he waits till someone opens the door and sneaks in. And the next thing he's at yep. her front door, yep. it's like, whoa, okay, that is really. And then, then she the opens thing... the
1: door and invites him to leave and he doesn't. Yeah. And, and he doesn't. Yeah, it's
0: Yeah. Big consent issues yeah. there. <laughs> Tucks her in consent. bed she... and... yeah. yeah. Sits on the side of a bed and yeah, all that stuff. It's sort of, yeah, it was, that was definitely, I think that showed its age. I think that. That scene—it was kind of—it um, definitely wouldn't fly these days, which is a good thing. But it also makes you makes you consider how much of a rom com behavior in the '90s we let slide through rom coms in the '90s because that's the way rom coms of the '90s were. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of that when you look back. I mean, we've we've talked about it a bit in when Harry met Sally. We've talked about it in, in well in The Holiday, which was later than that. So and in some of those later rom coms. Um, there's still some very, very, even um, uh, 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 um, the one that hasn't really, uh, oh gosh, I'm getting, it's going to come back to me, the Christmas movie, uh, the Christmas rom-com, Love Actually,
1: oh, which yeah. actually
0: has aged terribly in terms of things like yeah. references to, you know, the the um, weights and relationships. Oh, it's like tree
1: trunks, yeah.
0: that's the line that's the line yes um you know some really terrible things in that in that film that we have just like wanting to get
1: in bed with the stranger guy yeah yeah.
0: quite a lot of questionable moments but so I think we've we've definitely moved on um from a lot of that which is great but um yeah it's it's incredible what we actually just and certainly when I first saw it in fact when I saw it several times never even blinked at that sort of stuff previously it was like part of it Mm. and it's only you know more recently that you go oh okay not not great I
1: i think that the the reason that that scene might work is if they had a friendly tangible relationship before that moment but they don't the last thing that had happened was um i think just trying to think it must have been the the argument they had um it must have been at that party when he was going on about, you know, all well, cans of olive oil is not what I meant, you know, and that's the last time that they have an interaction. So for him to then come into her apartment, into her space and be so intimate and for them to have this intimate connection, you know, when he puts his hand towards her face to shut her up. And again, another, you know, classic great guy move. Um, it's like that, that it felt like there was a missing link there should have been some sort of peacemaking before then for that scene to be acceptable. maybe even if it just wasn't in her bedroom in her bed yeah it might have been
0: slightly yeah more it might acceptable. have helped the only thing about it that may be where the screenwriter is coming from is the idea which you kind of get a sense throughout the film is there's, a, there's a, something that draws them to each other that they are both, they neither of them can deny, right? So there's that sense of kind of, and you can get a sense of it in some of the scenes where, you know, they're together and there's this kind of, there's this tension and she doesn't like him, but there's also a, you, you can sense sort of something, a sort of chemistry maybe. Um, doesn't mean it's okay, but I just wonder whether, you know, those sort of moments are relying on the fact that we're trying to create a sense of this thing between them is bigger than the both of them kind of thing Mm. I don't know just that's the only way I could see that that would be yeah yeah, potentially but But
1: I I, because I do think actually as a as a you know to see a female character represented on screen in the 90s who was so confident and so um intolerant I think to some of the you know like even I think there was a, a scene when she's talking to Joe and she's, she's talking about all these silly girls now who refer to themselves as Kimberly or whatever, you know, like liking themselves to cocktail waitresses, demeaning themselves and her reaction to Frank and things like that. And, you know, the short hair that we mentioned at the beginning, things like that broke a stereotype that we had been used to. And I'm thinking of uh, something like she's all that or never been kissed, you know, those kind of rom-coms. This, this was a very different, um, different styling of a female protagonist, um, and I did get the Meg Ryan hairdo. It was actually probably more Gwyneth Paltrow in *Sliding Doors* hairdo, actually, than Meg Ryan. But yeah, I've had that go one for too. Short hairdo.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I definitely had. <laughs> I was very heavily influenced by those films from a haircut point of view, and you know, hair color. You know, I <laughs> naturally have very dark hair, so I've just gone. Blonde and short, thanks to Meg Ryan and Gwyneth Paltrow and a range of other um, brilliant actresses from the 80s and 90s and 2000s. Thank you very much. But, yeah, I mean, mean, let's talk about that for a minute because that was, you know, I would say arguably Meg Ryan's haircuts in the various films that she did throughout the 90s was pretty much as powerful or similarly powerful to the Rachel cut from Friends. What do you think? Did you ever get that?
1: Um, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't think so. I don't think so just because, um, I'm just trying to think. So Harry Met Sally came first, didn't it? And then Sleepless in Seattle. So her hair was getting longer and then it was completely cropped, wasn't it? So, but I think there are elements in, especially in, um, when Harry Met Sally, where well, she's she's like an ultimate feminist, you know, the way she feels about the subject, the subjectification of men, uh, of women towards, uh, you know, in the eyes of men in the relationships and how they, you know, they're effectively just used and, all, you know, she she really doesn't stand for any of that. So I think as a, as a, almost as a character trait, Meg Ryan has played these, you know, sort of very independent um intolerant women and i don't think her haircut reflected any change in that um i th- i think um i think it was probably a very representative of being cosmopolitan new york um than anything but it certainly lent into her character uh which i'm sure meg ryan had honed through those other two characters um from those
0: other two films Definitely. And Mm. I think she continued it on with um, the movie called Josephine. Mm. And she was with, do you remember there was a film after that? It was not, it didn't go as well as any of these um, films. I'll just quickly look it up. And she continued with the Mm. short haircut. And it was great. I just thought it was a very, yeah, it was, it looked. It looked amazing. So, uh, Kate and Leopold—that was another one. She also had a really great haircut in Kate and Leopold. I don't know if you've seen that film. Have you seen that? film? No, I haven't. No, yeah, no. It's really, really interesting. It's, it. it's worth a look at. Actually, it's, a, it's, it's quite bizarre. It's, it's quite a departure from the sort of <laughs> typical rom coms she did. It sort of goes back in time. It's really weird. Anyway, um, so what can we take from this as screenwriters in this film? What, what can we learn?
1: Well, I mean something that I really picked out from this, which we haven't really discussed is, is the dialogue. And I think that it's, Mm. she's brilliant. Nora Ephron has always been brilliant at the dialogue. Um, But in this particular film, I feel that it's, she is the strongest and they, it has a double meaning. There's subtext in almost everything, you know, right down to, I hope your mango is right. I think it is. And, you know, he's talking about, you know, is it now the right time to reveal who he is to her? And, um, you know, the, when there's the, the thing that introduces us to Joe's character really is when he goes into the shop around the corner and he wants to know about the used books and he's having a discussion about the hand-tipped illustrations why does it cost so much it's worth why is it worth so much you know rather than co- he sees costs and actually it's worth so you know there's there's a lot of brilliant things in there and um I think the thing that probably makes uh, I'm going to really generally stereotype here. So forgive me, listeners, if I'm if I am overcrossing a mark. But I think the thing that makes women swoon over the, the Nora Ephron guy dialogue that. you know all of these all this nothing has meant more to me than so many somethings or drinks and dinner or a movie for as long as we both shall live you know those kind of things they reached its pinnacle in sleeps in Seattle the way that um, Sam talks about his dead wife and and it's just I, I think the way she captures how women want to be spoken to you know how they want to, and it comes out as respect. Actually, they they want to be respected and spoken about in a way that is appropriate and uh, and means something. There's feeling in in what they what they're saying, and she's not afraid in any of her films to. Um, sort of uh, challenge that toxic masculinity you know in Sleepless in Seattle Sam is jeered by his workmates for having his emotions out there even though the female client is saying it's wonderful that you're doing that and the blokes behind him are going yeah we wish we could do that you know and I I love that that she uses the dialogue to demonstrate that and it's almost a shame that it's kind of goes over goes over over the heads of the male characters but it makes it more poignant that it does. And I, I think if you've watched the Barbie movie recently, I won't spoil it for you, but there's a reference to The Godfather in that film. And it it just is very clever in how, it, how they reference it, how they reference the use of it typically by men, maybe more t- toxic masculine men. Um, and there's a reference to it in... In uh, you've got male twice actually, and in both times the way that Meg Ryan oh, her character reacts is is exactly how they react in Barbie movie, and that was, you know, what twenty five years ago. Um, so can you imagine all the mansplaining that was going on twenty five years ago that <laughs> has been happening for twenty five years?
0: Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. We've all been
1: secretly in our heads going, "Oh my god, he's talking about yeah. my father again." <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's a really um, a really lovely connection there between those. I hadn't considered that, but yeah, you're absolutely right. It's um, yeah, and it's 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 quite lovely. It's a bit a bit of a stereotype, but terribly truthful. Um, yeah, and I I agree on the dialogue front. I think she's I I think Nora Ephron generally is a master of authentic um dialogue. I think um m- one of my favorites is. Uh, in Harry Met Sally there are so many lines in When Harry Met Sally that you recite you repeat you share you I'm always throwing it around the place but just the way that she gets that sort of cadence if you like between characters that really natural authentic sounding language that you really feel like you're with a bunch of friends you really you know you really feel like you're with people that you, you, you you know you really relate and understand them really deeply um and I I love the way she does that but I also love the fact that she writes this really beautiful these lovely lines for men about you know and I mean that that would be right wouldn't it that you want to know how to speak to a woman get a woman to write a mouth lines you know
1: Yeah, I, I, I think times I think times have changed I think the way that that men speak to and about women has changed oh definitely hugely. Yeah. yeah there will always be room for more and there will always be pockets of society where that is not evident at all and um I I, I think it's good to look back 25 years and see what the ideal standard was and reflect on how that is now um I'm incredibly fortunate i my husband is is the type of man that fulfills that kind of you know sort of that respect boundary and that respect and I know that there are a lot of women out there who don't get ever get to experience that and I sincerely hope that they do because you know times have really changed and I think that what was possibly wishful thinking you know back in 1990s or the 1980s is is a reality for so many of us now, and was a, re- a reality for so many people back then, but not as many. And I, I think it's subtle—it's a very subtle point of you know, this is this is the standard you should expect, and you shouldn't expect any less. And um you know, this again reflects back into the Barbie movie, which I cannot wait to unpack with you and Marcus. I'm I really very
0: excited <laughs> about talking about that too, and and that is a perfect segue to end our chat for today so uh which is that we will be talking um helen and marcus and i will be talking about well we're going to do a bit of a mashup, aren't we we're going to talk about yeah. barbie and oppenheimer Well we're calling it oppen barbie because why not
1: barbenheimer so, yeah. barbenheimer
0: <laughs> 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 Open and Barbie I like too there. It's pretty good. Anyway, we're <laughs> going to talk about the two of them a bit later. Um, very soon. That'll be our next episode. But in the interim, thank you so much for stopping by and listening to our chat today. And thank you so much, Helen, for joining me and chatting about this no, thank film. Thank you. Do
1: you it's still love it pleasure. as much? I really do. Probably have a... a- Better respect for it than I think I did before. And for the thirteen-year-old yeah. that watched that, or fourteen-year-old, however old I was, probably shouldn't say wow. that on podcast. That's old something, was, isn't it? That, yeah,
0: mm. <laughs> learned a few lessons there, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, obviously, some good ones though, not you? About how to be treated, and anyway, mm-hmm. yeah, it's really good. So, thank you so much, everyone, for stopping by. Please, as I said at the opening, feel free to like, share, and subscribe to our podcast. Um, we'd love to see you again really soon. Thank you so much. See you later.